Traditionally, our show has focused on the weekly Torah portion, but throughout the Jewish world, this past uh, weekend has been the observance of the festival known as Shavuot. Shavuot goes by many names. It has uh, biblical names. And it has uh, names that's given in its context throughout the Jewish world and Jewish history. But Pentecost is not usually one of them. The holiday of Shavuot, the Jewish holiday, is often confused with a Christian holiday that happens around the same time of year. But Shavuot is not the Jewish Pentecost. Both Shavuot and Pentecost are celebrated after a count of seven weeks, which is why one means weeks and the other means 50. Shavuot is celebrated seven weeks after Passover, and Pentecost is celebrated seven weeks after Easter. And of course, I would suggest this is not a coincidence. The Greek term Pentecost is used by some authors of the Septuagint, an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and by the author of Acts to refer to the Jewish celebration of Shavuot. Just as Easter, in Greek, Pascha is a holiday derived of an adaptation of the Jewish Passover. So, too, Pentecost is a holiday that is derived from an adaptation of the Shavuot. But for more than thousand years, they have been very different holidays for their respective communities with different meanings and different rituals. The rituals of Shavuot, beyond the uh, receiving of the Ten Commandments, include festival meals exclusively of dairy, all-night Torah celebration and study, the recital of Akdamut liturgical poems in Ashkenazic synagogue, the reading of the Book of Ruth, and the decoration of homes and synagogues uh, with greenery. Of course, the other traditions um, are the Torah portions that are read during this holiday, uh, and the references in the biblical epic. And so this morning I want to chat with you about the festival, and I want to begin with a story. Once upon a time, the famed Tanaitic sage, Rabbi Akiba, was traveling alone. He came to a certain town and sought lodging there. 
but they refused to host him. Instead of growing frustrated or upset, Rabbi Akiva simply said, everything that the merciful one does, he does for the best. Lacking other options, he went and slept in a field. He had with him a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. While he was there, a strong gust of wind extinguished the lamp. Then a wild cat came and devoured the rooster. Finally, a lion attacked and consumed the donkey. And once again, Rabbi Akiva exclaimed, everything that the merciful one does, he does for the best. That night, a legion of Roman soldiers marched on the town and took it into captivity. Rabbi Akiva no longer had a candle, a rooster, or a donkey to give away his location, so he evaded capture. Rabbi Akiva said to them, Is it not as I have always told you, everything that the Holy One blessed be, he does is ultimately for the best. So that is a Talmudic story. And perhaps you have encountered this story or one of its kind in a compendium of Jewish folklore. Or maybe you're reading it uh, as we... uh, Speak in some manner or form, uh, and maybe you are hearing it for the first time this morning. Uh, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if you read and listened to it this morning with a skeptical eyebrow arched toward the ceiling. The funny thing about Talmudic and Midrashic stories is that they often come across slightly too convenient. Not that convenience is a commodity to be sniffed at in any time, but the issue stands nonetheless. How much can realistically be extrapolated from a story of doubtful historical accuracy where every domino falls perfectly into place to create the most unlikely of happily ever afters. Like Disney executives, self-isolating in their ivory towers, expecting us commoners to blithely accept the resurrection of Emperor Palpatine out of absolutely nowhere. We tend to be left with more questions than insights as the credits roll and Rabbi Akiva walks into the sunset. Except, he didn't have a donkey anymore, so he should be walked off. But, if we dig deeper and ask hard-hitting questions, who knows, maybe we'll make sense of this yet. Rabbi Akiva was without question or challenge the leading scholar of his generation. Such was his expertise in the exegesis of Torah law that the Talmud recounts elsewhere another story. When Moses ascended Mount Sinai on Shavuot to receive the Torah, he noticed that many of the letters were ordained, adorned with miniature crowns. Curious, he asked God why these crowns were necessary. 
You see, God explained, in generations hence there will be a scholar who will expound innumerable ideas based on the placement of these grounds. Such will be the level of his insight. Curiosity peaked further. Moses asked to see this scholar in action, and he was shown a vision of Rabbi Akiva teaching his students. The brilliance and profundity of Akiva's discourse was so impressive, at the vision's conclusion, Moses exclaimed, Master of the universe, why give the Torah through me when you could do so through this brilliant man? Indeed, the period of mourning observed by Jews around the world during the period between Passover and Shavuot, known as the Omer, marks the untimely death of Rabbi Akiva's 24,000 students in an epidemic. Now, irrespective or not, the admittedly strange, well-rounded number of 24,000 is meant literally. The overarching message is clear. Rabbi Akiva had a lot of students. As the Disney movie might say, one does not simply acquire so many students without being possessed of true greatness. Without, with that brief introduction to the persona of Rabbi Akiva, here's the riddle. It is the part of the story that bothered me for more than his unusual choice of luggage, and even more than the improbably convenient sequence of events that led to his safety. If Rabbi Akiva was so great, why didn't a single resident of the soon-to-be-doomed town offer him accommodation? Was the town wholly evil? There is no mention of this in the Talmud, no, for that matter, in the nocturnal military attack presented in any way as an act of divine retribution for mistreating the venerable stage. Indeed, that an entire town was carted off into captivity is portrayed in exactly the same style as the demise of the candle, the rooster, and donkey. Thus, another domino in the sequence. So let's rephrase this question in a modern-day term. Picture the scene. You're tidying the house the day the sun is setting. Add some dramatic ambience here just to hammer the point out. You're in Manchester, England, so it's raining too. And suddenly there is a quiet knock at the door. Who can that be, you mutter, pattering over to peek through the keyhole. You hurriedly straighten your dressing gown and slippers, and it's none other than the famous Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and renowned public figure in Israel. He is drenched from the rain, and he politely asks you for shelter just for one night. He'll be on his way in the morning. What would you react? How would you react? I mean, it's a bit of a silly question, yes? You probably pinch yourself at the unexpected honor, promptly beg the rabbi to stay for longer, isn't it a bother? No, no, stay as long as you need. Yet Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage of his era, 
was turned away at every single doorstep. Let's move to explain, examine his itinerary. Well, the itinerary is certainly interesting. It is a lamp, a rooster, and a donkey. The donkey, if we were making a movie, is played by Eddie Murphy. Entirely understandable. What about the rooster? Master commentator Rabbi Solomon Izaki offers a logical explanation. Rabbi Akiva needed it to wake him up in the morning. Think about that for a moment. We're on a collision course with the same question as above. If Rabbi Akiva expected to be lodging overnight in a populated area filled with roosters, and people who could quite easily provide him with an alarm call whenever he wanted. He is, of course, the leading stage. Why take the rooster in the first place? Unless he anticipated being on his own in the middle of nowhere. Once again, the plot unveils itself in an unusual way. Truth is, the way out of this labyrinth is surprisingly enough hidden in the least believable part of the story. The part where the army turns up in the middle of the night and carts away an entire town and into captivity. And as we read this, we immediately think metaphor, the symbolic exaggeration with little historical accuracy meant to be interpreted, not meant to be interpreted literally. The thing is, there was an error in Jewish history that intersected with Rabbi Akiva's life. When the wholesale capture and massacre of Jewish towns was sadly all too common. The Hadrianic decrees preceding and following the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 to 138 of the Common Era, in seeking to squash a rebellion, that spread from the Judean hills to engulf most of the Roman-occupied Israel. Emperor Hadrian recalled feared General Sextus Julius Severus from as far away as Britain, massing a vast army far larger than used by Titus 60 years earlier to besiege Jerusalem and destroy the Second Temple. Rabbi Akiva, advanced in years, and the foremost religious personality of the age, threw his full support between, behind Bar Kokhba by declaring him the anointed Messiah. With this rabbinic seal of approval, Bar Kokhba was able to attract support from across the diaspora and wage a multi-fronted war as legions were drafted in from across Europe. Jews flocked by the thousands despite at Bar Kokhba's side. For a brief period of time, the rebels were successful. They composed unique prayers, minted coins, wrote salutary letters to their compatriots in Greece and Babylon. But Akiva's hopes soon proved premature. Gradually pushed back, Barkhba slowly gave back to Paranoia, seeing enemies and threats everywhere. 
Eventually, this misguided general accepted a slander that portrayed by his own uncle uh, and had him executed in cold blood. It was the beginning of the end for Jewish life in Judea, the turning point from which the center of Judaism's world swung back to the communities of Babylon. According to Roman historian Cassius Dio, the final years of Rabbi Akiva's life saw close to 560,000 Jews massacred, a thousand towns and villages razed to the ground and erased from the map. The sun set on Judea as a Jewish land for the last time and wouldn't rise again until 1948. Well, Rabbi Akiva, as the uh, spiritual guider, spiritual leader of this revolt, became public enemy number one. And... You can then imagine why no town in the land wanted to host Rabbi Akiva. And now we ask ourselves, why is Rabbi Akiva's story connected to the holiday of Shavuot? Well, I think that even if we were to continue to unpack the variety of symbolic references, the donkey, the rooster, and the lamp, the most important part of the message is that which we take with the greatest grain of salt. Rabbi Akiva says to all, it is not as I have always told you, everything that the Holy One, blessed be He, does is ultimately for the best. In order to understand who Rabbi Akiva is talking to and why he uses this uh, special term, let us look at the symbols once more. And let us understand that the lamp that Rabbi Akiva carries is that which will banish the darkness of exile, as the story portrays it. Rejoice greatly, uh, Psalm 132, There will I make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my Messiah. The lamp that Rabbi Akiva carries is that which will banish the darkness of exile. In Zechariah, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in joy, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, triumphant, yet humble, riding on a donkey. The donkey he rides on is the symbol of a humble yet triumphant hope, riding through the gates of Zion. And from the Talmud, Rabbi Simle taught, what is the meaning of that which is written, Woe to those who await the day of God's redemption and his darkness, not light. It is 
comparable to a rooster and a bat who were waiting for the crack of dawn. The rooster said to the bat that I await the sunrise is understandable, as light is an indication of my time to be active. But as for you, why do you need light? Nighttime for you is like daytime for me. The rooster's crow symbolizing the lamp-like sunrise to banish the darkness of a suffering world led to a promised future by a redeemer riding the donkey that carried the burden of a hundred generations in triumphant humility. It was the same refusal to give up hope that guided his response to the tragedy of losing all of the students and therefore a lifetime's achievement during the period of the Omer, the time between Passover and Shavuot. Rabbi Akiva did not throw the towel in. When he saw destruction, when others saw destruction, he saw opportunity. When others saw the end of Jewish life, he saw a new beginning. Not the figure who hunted and hounded from the ashes of a failed Messiah and scorched earth retaliation, who still traveled the length and breadth of the land, exhorting, begging, and pleading. It is certainly the language of don't give up. And so it seems uh, unusual to think of this story in the context of this year's Shavuot. And yet it is truly an important uh, understanding of Shavuot. Or what is Shavuot? Shavuot means weeks. And it refers to the biblical holiday celebrated on the 6th of the Hebrew month of Sivan. And we're told that it's the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Yes, it completes the seven-week Omer period between the second day of Passover and Shavuot. And the same Hebrew word means oaths. So while on one hand, the Torah tells us that this is a celebration of the wheat harvest, and the ripening of the first fruits, which is the reason for two biblical names of this holiday, Yom Bikaron, or the Day of First Fruits, or Yom HaKatsir, the Harvest Festival. It is really the day in which we make an oath that Torah, Torah, the product of the revelation at Sinai, the Torah scroll that we hold so dear, the Torah scroll that tells us that hope is the eternal message of our people, Shavuot conforms to this special story that I've shared to you with all its symbolic meaning out of the ashes of the second revolt against Rome came the messianic hope. Out of bondage in Egypt came the revelation. 
came that revelation at Sinai that promised to the Jewish people an eternal home with God, an eternal partnership with God, and the possibility of life renewed. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm now by Stephen Garten. Uh, thank you for joining me. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. Shalom and have a good day. Shalom, shalom,